a familiar passage in Second Chronicles in just a few moments. But to somewhat put this in context, we're going to ask this question, what's missing? If you can put that next slide up. There we go. For three years, King David had prepared materials for the temple. If you remember, David longed to build this temple. He was a man after God's own heart. But because he was a man of war and had blood on his sword in his life, God did not allow him to build this temple. Up to this point, it was somewhat temporary residence. And we know that in the Old Testament that God uh, would take a place like a temple that was projected and make his presence known in that place. When King David died, it fell on his son Solomon to complete the task. Many thousands of laborers and skilled uh, employees with specializations were employed in this work. After seven and a half years after it had begun, the temple was completed in all its architectural magnificence and beauty. And then a deafening silence of non-activity. Now think about this for a moment. Seven years, three years of preparation. Then there were seven years of actually building it. And I might add, they never heard a single hammer or a chisel. If you read in the scripture, you know the temple. Can you imagine a building of this uh, magnificence uh, actually being assembled? It was all assembled off-site, prepared off-site. The first manufactured home. If I can say that, was the glorious temple of Jesus, well, it would be honored to the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, but for, to Jehovah God. Three years of preparing the materials, and then Solomon, the son of David, actually assembling it without making a single noise. And that was to honor the presence of God for which it was being built. And then, for 13 years, it stood still on the summit of Moriah, Silent and unused. I might add also that's the same place that earlier that we had a man offer his son Isaac. Same location. The reasons for the strange delay in its consecration are unknown. At least at the close of these 13 years, preparations for the dedication of the temple were made on a scale of the greatest magnificence. Which caused me to pose this question. Think about this. I'm about to quote one of the most um, quoted passages on appealing to God to heal the land. You'll recognize it when we get to it. But I've often thought sometimes we take a text, we quote the text, and then it has meaning to us uh, in its own way without understanding the Bible alone. What does the Bible say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? And this is the context where we're headed. Three years to get the material together, David dies. His son Solomon for seven years, without ever hitting a hammer on sight, making a noise, this beautiful edifice was, was constructed. And then, at the end of that, 13 years of nothing. By the way, you think we got a building program going here at this church? I guess I'm just reminding us, remember, it's not about a building, it's about God. Amen? I happen to believe... That these three years of David, a man after God's own heart, he was in the will of God. And then I believe that Solomon, who did all the preparation and then the actual construction of this temple, was in the will of God. And then we come to our text after 13 years now. 3 plus 7, that's 10, plus 13, 
23 years since God had put in David's heart to build this thing. Now, at the end of 13 years, he's about to get it, dedicate the building. And I, I pose the question that you see in a slide. Well, what in the world is missing? It would seem to me that revival is there. I mean, think about these folks. It's like God showed up one day to know and said, build an ark. And a hundred years later, it's built. God didn't have a lot of conversation over that hundred year span of build the ark. Here's the plans and start building. It was just as much for Noah to be in the perfect place of God's service with everything that he built in the tremendous ship that he built, a boat, ark that he built. And the same sense we see here in Solomon, King Solomon. In God's perfect will. But why is there not a manifest presence? Where is God's, uh, God's acknowledgement of his involvement? I think David, I think Solomon, I think every one of those who were involved in preparing. I think those 13 years of silence. There was an anticipation of a special move of God. And we see it in Second Chronicles chapter 7. I pick up in verse 11. The ark was solemnly brought from the tent. Remember, God had dwelled in a very temporal place, a tent now. Now there's getting ready to move that ark. And where the ark of the covenant moved, there was also the manifestation of God's presence. The ark was solemnly brought from the tent in which David had deposited to the place prepared for it in the temple. And the glory cloud, the symbol of the divine presence, filled the house. Then Solomon ascended a platform which had been erected for him, and in the sight of all the people, and lifting up his hands to heaven, poured out his heart to God. When Solomon had finished the temple, verse 11, the Lord in the royal palace had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord, and in his own place. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among the people. Get, it, get the context here now. All these years had passed, a period of silence. Now God is finally moving him to get, dedicate the temple. And he is saying to Solomon, when those moments occur... When my judgment comes upon the land. Now this is a great way to dedicate a building. Think about how God showed up. You think God would show up and say, Oh, Solomon, I'm so happy with you. I pat you on the back. and Man, this is going to be a great day. We're going to have celebrations and musicians, which all of those were, were too. But he's really saying to him, I want you to be aware of something. Is that those moments are ahead of you when I am going to be bringing judgment at various times for various reasons and I want to prep you in advance. Of course, enjoy your celebration. You've moved the Ark of the Covenant into this temple, a permanent, more of a permanent dwelling place. But now that the, the Ark is there, and my manifest presence is now in the temple, I want to alert you to the fact, this is not the end. While you're still communing with me, while you're still in fellowship with me, while you're still in harmony with me, there are going to be those moments of judgment. Then he says, verse 14, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. I wonder if you would just uh, humor me for a moment. Would you mind out loud reading that with me? Beginning in verse 14. Read this out loud with me. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What a powerful promise. This was not written yesterday. This was written several thousand years ago. And this promise has been there all these years. I want to somewhat, in dissecting this passage, put this passage in context with the spiritual fire of revival burns. What does revival actually look like? And then I'm going to come back and pick up the first part, those four components that are prerequisite for God bringing revival to his people. Now, we know he's focusing on the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, but this verse in the Old Testament is a a hinge pinge for revivals that would break out, 26 of them at least, in America alone, that would sweep a nation, begin in a very obscure places, most of them, and I have studied these revivals. They're very fascinating. What does revival look like? First of all, God hears and responds to the prayer of his children. So it's the last part of that verse. And if you're following along in your notes, it's right there. God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. He is pleased that his children long to have a special visitation from heaven. So if we were looking on the other side of judgment, when a nation is drifting from God, or an individual is drifting from God, knowing what he is missing is a good thing. So what have we as a nation been missing or maybe even you as an individual. I'll be speaking all three services to know our revival technical. Our revival service doesn't start this morning. It'll start tonight at 6 o'clock right in the Family Life Building when our very guest and exciting uh, pastor, evangelist, will be with us, Brother Joel, and Rod Hamilton, his worship leader, will be joining us, and some 35 choir members will be already up, and all those different things will be in preparation And we have been somewhat anticipating. I've gotten emails and letters and comments. And a Sunday, uh, last Sunday at three o'clock, we actually had a prayer time here in this sanctuary. And I often sometimes think that maybe we don't really get what the what revival would look like, even if it walked up and slapped us in the face. What are we praying for God to do? And I think we see this here we see that in the end of this prayer in the formula that I'll walk through in just a moment, is that there is an intimacy with God. So much so that we claim our, our throne rights, where we are to go boldly to the throne of God, and the Bible says, and it's a directive, it's also a promise, and it's a tremendous, uh, how do I want to say this, privilege. God says, come boldly to Him. And in our bold approach to God, it sounds, almost sounds like, boy, I thought we were supposed to, No, it assumes this, that I am so right with the Lord, I'm in so fellowship with Him, the blood of Jesus Christ is covering all of my sin, there's no no sin between me and the Savior, which means if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ His Son cleanses from all sin. So it assumes this, 
I'm right with the Lord. I have prayer power with Him. I have immediate access, and my access to Him is with great regularity. I just don't have to wait till a Sunday night service at 6 o'clock or a called meeting like we had last week at 3 o'clock in the sanctuary. We know that revival exists. We know that a, that a, a perpetual, ongoing uh, energizing of the Holy Spirit is in our life when right now, at this moment, I am accessing God and everything is right between my soul and the Savior. This is a good question to ask. Are you right now experiencing a true intimacy with God? And a quick way to discover that is, is what God would promise the end result of a people who seek His face. Is that, I will hear your prayers. I will enjoy fellowship with you. And so, revival looks like, quite frankly, is that we're walking in fellowship with Him. Number two, sin is forgiven. God promises us that, that the end result of us walking with Him, will that we will demonstrate the fact that there's, I have a freedom, I'm walking in liberty, I'm, I'm living without guilt. There's a confidence and a boldness about me. By the way, that's a great mark of a Christian, is that when true spiritual revival is entered into his life and his domain as a lifestyle, there's a confidence about this person. Not only is God so available to him, and God is walking in intimacy with those who follow him, if you're living in a state of revival, is that there's nothing between my soul and my God, because my sin has been forgiven. I'm a happy Christian. I display the fruit, singular, the fruit that manifests itself in all those ways. The fruit of the Spirit is, here's how you know right now if you need revival because there's an absence of this in your daily walk. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. If I am walking in harmony with God, I know that the end game of those who are away from God, whether it's an individual, a congregation like ours, or a nation, if I am thinking about, boy, I am falling short of where God has me, and I am praying for a special movement of God, let me tell you the outcome of such a prayer, a revival prayer. The outcome will look like this. God is communing with His people. And his people are communing with him. And his people, that individual, is walking in harmony with him. And the fruit of the Spirit is a part of their, it's like inhaling and exhaling. About them will be a, a disposition of love. Think about that for a moment. Joy. Even amidst great conflict or physical trauma or circumstantial tsunamis that come into your life. We know that we're in harmony with God when the Spirit of Christ is evident in my life. There's a love, the joy of oh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And then there's a peace even amidst, maybe my family's in uproar. Maybe, uh, maybe quite frankly, the boss at work is not doing what he ought to be doing. The, the relatives, uh, certainly uh, a boycott my Thanksgiving meal. Uh, there's a conflict that exists. And yet, inside of me, if I'm walking in a state of revival, there's a supernatural peace, love, and joy, and peace, kindness. 
a disposition no matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're a choleric or a, or a, a sanguine or a phlegmatic or a melancholy temperament. Some have identified those extrovert, introvert temperaments in two categories, extrovert and two uh, 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 extrovert and too introvert. No matter what's your temperament, there is a kindness that flows through your lips, through your life, that even your spouse, those who live under your roof, notice that, boy, this is not his typical personality. The truth of it is, something has tweaked him just a bit. Yeah, that which has tweaked that person a bit is the Holy Spirit because my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter... My colleague, my friend, my brother of all these years, they're walking in the Spirit. Goodness and faithfulness. That's what revival looks like. And so I begin with that. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for that in the heart of every individual in our congregation. And I'm not even talking about our guests and visitors. But as a result, and by the way, wouldn't it be great if that... Before the 6 o'clock, before Rod Hamilton leads that awesome choir and that special music and um, uh, uh, words are offered and then the sermon is preached and the invitation is given. Wouldn't it be magnificent that there's a community of believers at Corinth Baptist Church who already show up and are currently in a state of revival they're not looking for revival to actually transpire. And by the way, just so you'll know, you don't have to wait till 6 o'clock. Isn't that cool? You actually can do business with God right now. If there's something between your soul and the Savior, there's absolutely no reason, nothing, one thing, keeping you from making things right with Him. Well, that being the case, and we know what revival actually looked like, we actually have a fourfold formula that here's what one needs to do. God is acknowledged. Just by the way, this is under your notes. The land is healed. We see, first of all, God hears and responds to His children. Second of all, sin is forgiven. And then number three, the land is healed. Now, how, how is this land healed? Well, we see that God is acknowledged and Christ is exalted. The Holy Spirit anoints. The activity of the Holy Trinity... We see among us. We know that true revival in the life of an individual or in a community of individuals like a local assembly, that when revival occurs, there's not a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus promised that He had to leave and the Holy Spirit would come and indwell believers and as believers would collectively come together in His church move forward, that the Holy Spirit would not speak of Himself, He would speak of Jesus. So we know that the life of an individual who's living in a state of revival is one who is acknowledging God, the Heavenly Father. Where Christ is exalted, He is the primary focus of our thoughts and our mindset. And that it is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who lives within us that enables us to put in perspective. There's a reconciliation among believers. That's evident too when we see that, that revival has taken place. There's a fruitfulness among the citizens of America or of a nation. And their spiritual authority is so obvious. This is what does it look like when we're in revival. 
Well, God responds, sin is forgiven, and the land is healed. Now let's take a look at the formula for revival. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way. Well, first of all, prayer. I once heard a great uh, pastor make this statement. Nothing of any eternal significance ever occurs apart from prayer. So if the end game is, is that God would bring revival, and I did our best to somewhat take our text and summarize, well, what does revival look like? What is the formula for, the fi- for revival fires? It begins in prayer. There often has been a banner that's hung right to my left, and maybe we'll put that back up, that actually gives this text. We know that revival begins with the assumption that that, that soul that's away from God offers a prayer. And the prayer is not some flippant little thing like we do over a meal, which is a good thing to do. It's an earnest and ongoing passion for us to pursue and seek God. So you want to have revival in your own life individually? You want to have supernatural intervention? you got to just check your prayer life. Because God said to Solomon, predicting that there would be times of judgment on individuals and on nations, that the thing that they need to do is not get another stimulus package voted through and let the Republicans take over or the Democrats assume their responsibility. The way to bring an individual to a place of revival or a nation to a place of revival begins in prayer. By the way, I think it's very fascinating that we as a nation made up, at least that's what we profess to be, that we know Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, a nation of born-again Christians, is that often God... Maybe we'll just run a plane into one of the towers in New York City. We'll allow that to happen. And shortly after, as I saw live, the second plane hit. And then all of a sudden, by the time I drove back from Mount Washington, where Becky and I was eating at the greasy spoon and saw those events of 9-11 on a television screen, by the time I arrived back at the seminary, there was, a, there was an aura on campus. There was a certain level of panic. There was like an assumption that, I thought we were the greatest nation of, on earth. We were, quite frankly, without equal. Who would ever dare attack our land? Immediately all the planes were grounded. Remember that? There was only one plane allowed to fly, carry the President of the United States. And forces all... We were not prepared for this. We checked out our power plants and quite our atomic energy resources, our mainline bridges that connected highways... And a quick uh, plan was put in place that if terrorists are present among us so bold that they would do this and strike the Pentagon, and the third one was, was quite honestly defeated the effort to, to destroy, wouldn't they next of all, and they identified main target areas that terrorists were probably coming at next. We were a nation in disarray and confusion and in panic. And I saw secular and leftist bent media had to stop and utter... Pray for America. Church attendance spiked. And those who were boldest and most confident in their accomplishments and, and quite honestly in their leadership and influence, president, governors, senators, our representatives, the most ardent agnostic, and yes, even the atheist, had to give pause for a moment. Because I think, by the way, we, were, we, we had a great opportunity right then 
For a nation that was so, to a great degree, full of itself, could have just offered a prayer. And prayers were offered. And there was a temporary reprieve as we... But look, folks, how short are our memories, aren't they? We are a nation that's in need of prayer. And I think the prayer must, and revival must first begin in the house of God. Before we condemn or judge our presidents and our elected officials, we must take a look in our own life. And so Christians ought to pray if my people will pray or that focus on God. Second of all, believers intentionally humble themselves. The Bible says, humble yourself. Six times in the scripture we see this, a personal quality in which an individual shows dependence on God and respect for other persons. That formula for Bible begins in prayer. I would suggest that maybe even this afternoon or this week, if God's prompted you as secretively and not making a big boast, many of us have entered into a different time of prayer and fasting when we began thinking about the revival of Corinth Baptist Church. We would cert- certainly look internally, God, is there something in my heart, in my life? And can I just tell you, in the last month, it's been amazing some of the things that have come forth, not only from my life, but the lives of those closest around me, leaders even in this church. We pray and we seek God and we humble ourselves. For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with salvation, Psalm 149.4. You save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty, Psalm 18.27. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them their way, Psalm 25, verse 9. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground, Psalm 147, verse 6. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. Take my yoke upon you, he says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And a powerful passage in Matthew 23, verse 12, talking about humility. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But he gives us more grace, the scripture says in James 4. That is why God says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. In due time. There's a powerful verse. It's a very direct verse. That God says, he who is proud, God will resist him. When a person exalts himself. And by the way, the worst kind of pride is pride that even is masked with spiritual jargon. Even talks about himself in language like God is using me. Even will use platforms and maybe interpersonal interactions with God talk. To draw attention to themselves. That's a form of pride. And God says when those moments come in the life of an individual, He was telling this to Solomon. Solomon, after 13 years of waiting to celebrate the temple, God shows up in a prayer and say, I want to, I want to do a little preemptive stuff here, Solomon. I know you're about to celebrate the opening of this mammoth facility and you're going to see the presence of God. 
demonstrated as you bring the Ark of the Covenant in. There'll be great celebration everywhere. But on the eve before this happens, I'm going to give you a little insight. Those moments are going to come where my judgment will be upon people and you'll be asking yourself, why is there judgment on God's land and on God's people? And at that moment, I'm going to give you direction that you need to be alerted to the fact that these people have left me. And this basically is talking to God's people. We are to pray. We are to humble ourselves. And then sin is, is acknowledged. It's powerful verse 8, 13 of Romans. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if the spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Galatians 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion. I'm going to do something I've never done here, and I appreciate um, uh, Jeannie assisting me. I need about four or five men. Would you come quickly and help me serve as my ushers? I want to distribute... A sheet, just four or five men. Would you just come in? Or ladies, I'm, I won't. Uh, I'm going to give you what uh, Life Action in 1979. Uh, this is not the same exact sheet. Just distribute those guys, would you? Let me have one. And get those quickly to everybody here. Just, there you go. Just give it to each guy. Just quickly distribute that. I'll be doing that in the other services as well. This is a list of sins. Thank you. Go ahead and give him a few too. I don't want him to be naked here. Give him a few to distribute too. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Give him some sheets. This is a, a sin list. This is just a partial listing of sins that are identified in the Scripture. Some 78 of them. <clears throat> I don't want you to look at your neighbor's sheet. This may be something you want to hang on to. It's certainly anonymous. If you notice, I say prayerfully review this list below and check those that are a challenge to you. Now, please stay with me on this. There's a pencil in the back of your pew, I believe, or a pen. Reach out and grab that pen right now. Or reach into your purse and get a pencil. And if I could, George, go right up to the balcony and give a couple sheets up there as well. This is for all of us. Your pastor's already been through this sheet and taken a lot of time, and I've extended beyond this because there's a lot of sin mentioned in the Bible. Since God is directing Solomon and directing us, if we are to acknowledge our sin and repent of our sin, what specific sin am I committing right now? Now, I'm not a legalist. I'm not one that uh, uh, gives you a list of do's and don'ts. But I know that my God gives us enough directive that when we confess sin, the sin ought to be as specific as the sin itself. And to the impact of that sin on others, as I get to the final point in just a few moments, there ought to be a correction in that. Now, I'm rambling for an intentional reason. I don't mind. None of you do not need to be looking at me with your, with your eyes focused on a sheet in front of you. Take a pen and walk through that list. By the way, just think about what would my wife or my husband or my son or daughter, those who know me best, even better than this, ask the Holy Spirit who's living inside of you as a believer. Is there any of these sins that have been unconfessed in my life right now? Lack of love, judging, bitterness, unforgiving spirit, 
selfishness, pride, boasting, stubbornness. Number nine, disrespect for authority, rebellion, disobedience, impatience ungratefulness. You have so much stuff in your house. You drive a car that's not as new as someone else and yet everything about you says you're ungrateful. Is that your sin? Covetous. Always wanting something you don't possess. Discontented. Murmuring or complaining. Philippians 2.14. Number 17. Irritation to others. Jealousy. Strife. Retaliation. That is, I'm going to get even. Proverbs 24.29. Losing your temper. Anger. Be angry and sin not, the Bible says. Wrath. Easily irritated. Hatred. Murder. Gossip. Jesus would say later, he said, if you've already said rock in your heart, you're already guilty of the sin of murder when you have anger toward a brother and you like to see evil even them put to death. Gossip. Evil speaking. Critical spirit. Lying. Yes, and even at this church, among some of our best. Number 31, profanity, idle words, wrong motives, evil thoughts. As I walk through these, I have a lot of little place in that little circle. Just check it. Just check it and put it in your Bible. Because I want you in a pattern in preparation for tonight's service. Come to tonight's service totally in fellowship with God. And that means when God convicts you of a specific sin, you confess that sin to God. The Bible says if we can... Confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and all unrighteousness. I'm not giving you a sin list in order to make it morbid, but the truth of it is I believe there are people who live day in and day out, pray in general, and yet they are sinning specifically and they never appeal to God with a biblical prayer of repentance. We'll talk about that in a second. Complacency, laziness, slothfulness, Hypocrisy. You live one way at church, you talk a certain way among others, and yet you're a hypocrite. 39 is idolatry. You're worshiping a person or a relationship or a thing. 40, you left your first love. A lack of rejoicing. Worry and fear. Number 42, unbelief, unfaithfulness, neglect of your Bible. Maybe one of the biggest sins of members who attend our church. Not the not a minority, there's regular consistent people who delve into the Scripture, but you constantly neglect. You go days, sometimes weeks, and the only time you hear a Bible reading is when a preacher or a teacher leads you, neglecting the Word of God. 46, prayerlessness, Luke 18.1. No burden for the lost. Bearing your God-given talents. 49, irresponsibility with your family and work. Procrastination. 51, irreverence in the church. Inhospitable, cheating, stealing, Lack of moderation, gluttony, wrong friends, temporal values. 59, love of money and greed. 60, stinginess, moral impurity, fornication, lust, adultery, homosexuality, incest, pornography. Recently speaking to a group of teenagers, it was assumed all of them have seen porn. Unlike when I was a youth pastor years ago. Now with the screens and now what they carry on their own, their purse or their hip or whatever, they got that portable email, internet access. And the number of young people today who've seen nudity and bizarre and perverted behavior through that screen is in front of them. And I'm dealing more and more with those who are addicted to pornography. They got a filthy, dirty mind. And in that mind, it cannot be one that would access the throne of God. How do we deal with that? We confess it. By the way, true revival always has a component of 
an awareness and a sensitivity to the sin that separates us from our God. In, more, in modest dress. i got a whole series coming up on that one. You'll enjoy that. Flirtation, worldly entertainment, fleshly music, bodily harm. We're dealing right now with people who take pills to themselves or eat inappropriately. Even some who cut themselves and are abusers of their own person. Alcoholism, following the crowd, witchcraft, astrology and horoscopes, gambling, preferential treatment, James 2. We have that even in our church where some we elevate to a place of celebrity and others we look at them, we look down our nose at them. You sometimes can see it in churches like ours. Certain people walk in our doors, doors and have a certain odor about them, address a certain way. You know they're, they're not regular attenders. James warns us. Gambling, preferential treatment, and presumption on the future. These are just 78 that Life Action Ministries put together for us and did us a great service. And here's what I'd like to ask us to do. I want us just to pause for a moment of prayer before I finish my sermon. With that sheet in your hand, I want you to ask, Holy Spirit, reveal any sin in my heart. So as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'd like for you to offer a prayer out loud with your pastor. Say these words. Dear Lord, reveal any sin that keeps my soul from intimacy with you. Reveal it now. Whether it's on this list or the Spirit Himself is prompting me of something that's not on this list. Help me, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We put our little banners on our walls and we quote this verse with great, uh, quite honestly, with great passion. But men and women, we will never have revival unless... Believers, I'm talking about tenured believers that I'm looking at right now. Men who were saved and women who were saved when you were in your youth. And now for years you've identified with assembly and you've been faithful to the house of God. And yet sin has crept in. If it could creep in on David, King David. If it could creep in on Solomon. If it could creep in on the Apostle Paul. If it could creep on every single person that marks through those scriptures from Genesis in the very first chapter to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, how dare any of us be so presumptive that I cannot be a participant in sin? Boy, I'll tell you, this is convicting. I asked the Lord and I started preparing for this because I originally had uh, Joel scheduled to speak on this morning service. He's unable to do so. By the way, Giazzi yesterday, out of the clear blue, said, Joe's coming. Joe's coming. I said, honey, what are you saying? Oh, my Sunday school teacher said, Joe's coming. What do you mean, Joe's coming? I thought, maybe she's trying to say Jesus is coming. You mean, Brother Joel? Yeah, Brother Joel. I said, where'd you hear that, my Sunday school teacher? So just not the coming of a man and his team to lead us in worship. It's the very act that we are looking for revival. We are praying for God's intervention in our life. That in that intervention, God reveals that we have sin in our hearts. And that we've harbored this sin. And whether I pass out a sheet or the Spirit of God prompts you, oh my soul, I may be better than all these other Christians that are around me, certainly better than what I used to be, but the Spirit of God Himself speaks to you and speaks to me, and He says, I want you to be aware of that little list you just walked through. You quickly passed over some of those. 
I want to jog your memory when you prayed that prayer. This is something that stands between your soul and mine, and you don't have the access you once had. You don't have the enjoyment and fellowship you once experienced, and you've gotten accustomed to being away from me, my God says. And it's sin that separated you from God. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way. So that formula is prayer, it's humility, it's acknowledgement of sin. And then finally, number four, repentance. Repentance is something that is spontaneous. It's a feeling of regret, a changing of the mind, or a turning from sin to God. We live in a very self-centered, self-absorbed land that our churches are filled with a brand of Christianity that's totally foreign to Scripture. There ought to be such a heightened awareness about us that we can see sin from a distance. Jesus even suggests that we pray that prayer, part of His model prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now what is He saying in that model prayer that ought to be a part of our life? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. This is what this is saying to us as we look at this interesting passage. Is that God is promising not only Solomon and all the Hebrew children that are following him in the dedication of the temple, but there's a promise that will span the the centuries and the decades for each and every one of us. A promise of healing, a promise of, of a reuniting with our God, a promise of power, a promise of moving forward, a promise of liberation. But there must be repentance. Repentance on the standard of Christ, not how I compare myself with someone else. A willingness to say, God, I see my sin, and right now you have prompted me to acknowledge my sin. I agree with you about my sin, and because I'm in agreement with you about my sin, I immediately turn and go the opposite way. Repentance is that acknowledgement as Christ is my Lord. I know that I have fallen short of the standard that God has set for me. And His empowerment, His enablement is allowing me to follow Him and walk in fellowship. Not to be a perfect person, but to be a forgiven person. A forgiven person is one who acknowledges his sin specifically. And by the way, to the degree that your sin impacts someone else is the degree of your confession. If it's a private sin that's on your sheet, you can confess that to God and make it right. If it's a sin that involved others because you brought others into the sin with you, to the degree that that sin has been communicated to others, to the degree of your confession, going to that brother, going to that sister, going to that family member, going in some cases to an entire audience and saying, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I've asked God to forgive me. Would I'm asking you to forgive me. Humbling yourselves and repenting. I'm going to ask us just to bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment of reflection as we come toward an invitation time. You'd say, Brother Adams, I'm so excited about Brother Joel because, quite frankly, he brings engenders memories of a time in the past 
when our church experienced an unusual movement of God, make sure you don't worship Joel. You would offend him and certainly offend his Lord. What you're really hungry for is that a rekindled spirit with inside of you, what you experienced years ago, that you would re-experience it even now. It's not contingent upon any man, it's contingent upon your walk with Christ. You say, Brother Adams, this morning, as you've talked to me about this familiar passage, I feel very, very convicted. Please pray for me. I need a revival in my life, my soul. And the Spirit of God is saying as much to me. Would you just lift your hand if that's you? Come on. I need this revival. Oh, I need it. Yes, come on. 